O Lord my God, when I in awesome wonder consider all the worlds thy hands have made, I see the stars, I hear the rolling thunder, thy power throughout the universe displayed. Then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee, how great thou art, how great thou art. Let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up. And let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. When through the woods and forest glades I wander and hear the birds sing sweetly in the trees, when I look down from lofty mountain grandeur and hear the brook and feel the gentle breeze, then sings my soul, my Savior God, to thee, how great thou art, how great thou art. Then sings my soul, my Savior God, to thee, how great thou art, how great thou art. Did you have a great day? Oh, my hubby and I are experiencing camp uh, in a whole different light being here for family camp. We've been mostly involved with Thrive and the women's ministry side of things, but it is just amazing to see your kids riding around like they own the place, and I just love it. It's so wonderful. It's amazing. Um, so I'm going to do a quick little book intro because this just helps my honey at the table. I answer all these questions for him at once, and um, so I need my runners up here. I've got a few runners. All right, Strong in Battle, Why the Humble Will Prevail, is how to, it's just to really discern the predictable ways of the enemy and how to keep your identity intact when you're under fire and how to navigate battle so that you come through still standing. Who needs this? And that's how that works. Okay, now, I need some more runners. I need a few more. Come on up. All right, this one is Soul Care for the Battle. This is a guided journal. So when you're in battle, that's kind of a warfare handbook. This is like a day by the sea where you take care of your soul, where you step away from the battle. It's a guided journal, just remembering your good memories, uh, pondering with the Lord, dreaming with him. Just It's good for the soul. I don't know whoever needs that. All right, Fully Alive. This tells a little bit about my health battle, but it mostly is about what happens in your soul, happens in your cells. And I talk about the physiological impact of your emotions, shame, fear, selfishness, insecurity, how those impact your body. And so it's about inner healing, fully alive, learning to flourish mind, body, and spirit. Your Powerful Prayers is about knowing your identity in Christ and praying from above your circumstances, not beneath your circumstances. Your Beautiful Purpose, we talked about this this morning. Um, it really is about working through all your stuff so that you can dare to dream big with God and walk out your purposes. Your sacred yes, there's three kinds of yeses. The sloppy yes, the shackled yes, and the sacred yes. The sloppy yes is when you don't think enough about your life and you say yes to everything. It's not sustainable and it makes you spiritually vulnerable. The shackled yes is when you use your time, treasure, and talents to manage people's opinions. So you're captive to people's opinions. The sacred yes is when you break free from the bondage of people's opinions and serve an audience of one. There you go. Uncommon woman, we're going to talk about this tomorrow in the way of calling it be uncommon, but it's about... Uh, Again, breaking free from the bondage and the fear of man and living out of the love of God, knowing deeply. Now, for women, i got to just tell you, this is also breaking free from the stereotype. Women have earned at times being petty, gossipy, where we're going to break free from that and live on a higher plane uh, by living out of the love of God, where we're not subject to people's opinions, and we live the way God wants us to. Prevail means to prove more powerful than your opponent and to be the last one standing. I went from Genesis to Revelation and looked for opportunities and evidences of flourishing. And I will tell you, most books go about 55,000 words. This is 120,000 words. So at Leviticus, I was ready to quit. So I'm telling my husband, it's going to be an Old Testament devotional. And he's like, you go sit back down and write with a good attitude and I'll buy you a treat. So... That's truly how I finished, because I can't do it. It's so much, but I'm so glad I did. I love this. Some people have been calling this a mini commentary because it's just very meaty. And there's other books of mine back there, but these are a few. We just want you to have some. Thanks, honey.
Hope that helps. Tonight, I want to talk with you about the healings and dealings of God. Jesus is not content to leave us where we are. He loves us as we are. He takes us as we are, but he leads us from glory to glory. And salvation isn't just about securing a place in eternity. Jesus, if you follow him through the Gospels, cares about the human condition. And he wants not only to talk about what's happened to us, but he wants to get at what it's done in us, right? And when you learn about trauma, uh, there, trauma comes in two types. Some trauma we experience is when things happen to us that shouldn't happen. Other trauma is when things ha didn't happen for us that should have happened. Everybody has trauma in their past, but you can't heal from a loss or a disappointment that you refuse to acknowledge. You have to feel it to heal it. And what uh, we so often do is compare our losses and our hurts to someone else's who are much worse, and then we stuff it into the basement of our soul because it's not as bad as theirs. But what we don't realize is so often, whatever dings us and kind of hurts and we feel like, ah, that really hurt, what we don't realize is that so often it's connected to a childhood trauma, a childhood loss. And I often say that the enemy sees your potential long before you ever do. And if you just have to go back to your childhood and, and remember the time you first felt not enough or too much or had a reason to fear, because his threat against you is very connected to your threat against him. So I want you to picture your story, your life story, as just a bunch of pages, a storybook, and there's space in between each page. When you go through trauma or betrayal, rejection, loss, it's like those things compress the story till the pages get all pushed together. And what you'll notice when people don't deal with their trauma and their loss, when they've had significant uh, times of heartbreak, hardship, they forget their good memories. And you'll see people who haven't dealt with their stuff break off relationships because they can't remember one good memory because of the compression of their story. But when they walk through a healing process, and even they just pick one memory, good memory to remember, some healing, some space comes between the pages, and they decompress, and suddenly they remember their memories. Suddenly they remember God's faithfulness. And the enemy wants to keep us so compressed so that we'll make permanent decisions in temporary situations. But God wants to heal us. The enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Jesus comes that we have life and life to the full. And I often say he doesn't save us to slave us. He saves us because he loves us. And he wants us to be whole. He wants us to be healed. So the title of tonight's message is He Transforms. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this amazing camp, for the amazing leadership, for all the people that have worked so hard over the years to steward this place so that generations can come together and encounter you, the living God. Like I said this morning, Kevin and I felt the presence as we drove onto this campus. And Lord, I pray your blessing over tonight. I pray for each person here. Lord, you know their story. You know their ups and their downs, their highs, their lows, their heartbreaks, the twists and the turns. You know the lies they picked up when life let them down. Spirit of God, breathe on this place. Jesus, with your healing balm, would you move through this room, touch heads, hearts, stomachs, backs, memories. Open our eyes so we can see you. Open our ears so we can hear you. Awaken our hearts so that our hearts beat in rhythm with you. We want to be free. We want to be healed. We want to be whole. And we want to give you full permission and full access to our story so that we can walk with you on the healing path. So amazing that you didn't just come to save us, to slave us, to work us to the bone. You came to save us because you loved us, to heal us, make us whole, that we would be a shining bright light in a dark world, ambassadors, that we serve a good king, an amazing God, a mighty savior. We've got the spirit of the living God alive in us. How blessed are we? Speak through me now, Lord, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, for those who missed this morning's session, and some of you maybe know a little bit my backstory, and some may not, um, I had some trauma as a child. I was raised in a large family, a wonderful family, not a, um, not a mainstream evangelical family, so I didn't have the gospel preached to me. I had a sense of God's presence, but I didn't know Jesus personally. And when I was nine... Um, I was pinned down by some teenage boys and suffered a sexual assault, and I'm not gonna say more than that. Uh, when I was 10, I was walking home from school and I was jumped and I was beaten to a pulp with, by big giant 
teenage boys. I was punched and kicked, fistfuls of hair pulled out. And of course, my family knew about that. I didn't tell anybody about the sexual thing until I was about 18, and I held that in and about destroyed me. But I didn't know who to tell or how to tell or if I'd get in trouble. I just, I was so confused. But the beating, I came home beat up, and so everybody knew. Um, but then you jump ahead as a young mom. I um, contracted Lyme disease unknowingly uh, when I was during my pregnancy. I was on bed rest for six months. My one day I get up, I was bit by the deer tick unknowingly and started to experience neurological issues and um, have battled for three decades up and down and all around. And I've, I'm a fighter and God is good and I'm, I feel like I'm a walking miracle. Um, but I've had some pretty tough low times some pretty hard battles in it. But I have learned something about God. I've learned something about his word in this battle and it's not been wasted on me. And what I know about Jesus' character is that he cares about the human condition. And I want to just take a look for just a quick moment. When Peter, around a charcoal fire, denied knowing Jesus, denied it three times. I want you to imagine what that must have felt like for him because he was one of Jesus' best friends and he was ready to, to die for Jesus. But the stress and the anxiety of their Savior being brutally, unjustly arrested, imagine the crisis and the trauma for him. And suddenly, he's, not, he's, you know, he's alone. And so he denies knowing Jesus. And imagine him walking away from that. And, and charcoal fires were a common thing in biblical times. So imagine every time, the days after, when he, that smoke got in his nose, it triggered an absolute trauma for him of the worst day of his life. How would he ever get over that? So isn't it amazing that Jesus, when he returned, built a charcoal fire by which to meet Peter at? to reset and give him a new sensory experience around a charcoal fire. Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? This wasn't to condemn Peter. It was to recommission Peter. Jesus will sometimes take us back to painful experiences so he can propel us forward and promote us in his kingdom service. The enemy will bring us back to keep us stuck. Jesus brings us back like a bow so he can launch us forward. And he intends to do that with all of us. I want to take a look in a moment here at the woman at the well. But first I want to tell you about, I have a radio show. MyFaithRadio.com is the website. If you're, we're in the upper Midwest. We're kind of all over the place. But um, where we're outside of our signals, people get it on the app. And we have people listening in 170 countries, which is just amazing to me. And I've been in radio for 16 years, and people always ask me, what's your standout? Who's, who comes to mind? And I've been so blessed to talk to so many great leaders. But as far as the ministry value of a show, after 16 years, one that I'm still thinking about today is with Dan Allender, Dr. Dan Allender. Do you know him? Some of you do. He wrote the book, Redeeming Heartache. And I'm still thinking about that, that show. In fact, I just suggest you, if you want to write down myfaithradio.com, go to that website, search Dan Allender, Susie Larson. When you get a chance, go for a walk and listen to that show. But he talks about, because he, he, his ministry is for people in trauma to get them to a place of wholeness and healing. And after many years of studying trauma and how, why some recover and why some don't, he and his colleagues have discerned that trauma, for all of us, falls into one of three, these three archetypes. Trauma falls into one or more of these three outcast archetypes. The first one is an orphan. And you don't have to be a literal orphan, but if something happened in your trauma where you were left to figure things out on your own, you find safety through control. And there are a lot of orphan spirits that are CEOs and CFOs and even pastors where suddenly they take that orphan spirit and they suddenly get in control. And they lead from a place, though, of brokenness. And what he said they need to heal is rest and care. The next one is the stranger, and that's person kept outside the blessing of those who are in power. They're on the outside of the circle, and they struggle with jealousy and anger, and what he says they need is hope. And the third one was widow, and again, you don't have to be a literal widow, but when you are isolated or vulnerable, you feel not loved. What you need to heal is love, but he said the goal here with these three types of trauma. When healing happens, the transformation looks like this. The orphan becomes a priest. In other words, they become someone who advocates for other orphans. And what the enemy wants is for us to stay so stuck in an orphan mentality, we think we're permanently damaged. But for the believer, you're never permanently damaged. God can make all things new. So when you, when you go from an orphan mindset to a priest mindset, you know, that's the, the idea of a kingdom priest, right? where you're advocating and you're interceding and you're so humbly confident in your position in God that you become an advocate because you've, you realize you're not an orphan, you're an heir. 
And the stranger, he says, when they're healed, they go from stranger to prophet. So we think, like, I, I identify with stranger. I have felt outside of the circle for so long on so many different levels. But, the, the, you know, we think if, because if you're, if you're kept outside the circle, you think the answer is to get pulled into the circle. But no, the healed stranger becomes a prophet. Well, you know that you're calling. God has allowed this outside perspective so you can step in and bring an outside perspective, a biblical perspective. And then the widow, when you encounter royal love, you display God's love. And love heals so much. So now we're going to look at the woman at the well because I feel like there's so much we can learn from her about how we are going to heal. And one thing Dan Allender asked on my show is, what is going on with our unwillingness to look disaster in the eye? And Jeff Mannion, pastor and author who's been on my show a bunch of times, has said this, we've tried to become experts at not getting hurt, but we need to become experts at learning to heal. Think about that. We, we live with locked elbows. We're trying to manage circumstances. I don't want to get hurt. I don't want to get hurt. We're going to get hurt. We need to be experts at learning to heal. So the woman at the well. I love this story. The story is set in the book of John, chapter 4. We're going to look at this story from two angles, from the enemy's perspective and from the Lord's desire for us. The enemy's desire for us, the Lord's desire for us. A word about the well. Most people, most women, drew water in the morning and the afternoon. Scholars all believe and agree that this woman drew water in the midday to avoid the gossip of the townspeople. This was her workaround. And we, you know, before we get on too heavy on her, we all have our workarounds and our places of insecurity, things we try to avoid because we don't have to face that thing we've stuffed into the basement. I happen to think Jesus met her at the well because that was the place of maybe some of her greatest wounding. But she went to the well by herself in the midday when it wasn't convenient. It was all isolated, hot. She was alone. This woman had three strikes against her. She was a woman, considered an inferior gender. She was a Samaritan, considered an inferior mixed race. And she was known to be living in sin. So no respectable Jewish man would be caught dead talking to a person under one of those three circumstances. But don't you love Jesus? He'll cross every barrier to get to us. Isn't that amazing? Then none of that stopped him. In the passage, John 4, 7, it says, Soon a Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said, Please give me a drink. Now, I want you to think about this. Think about the two colliding kingdoms. Think about who she was and who he is. Dishonor, deceit, immorality meets dignity, honor, strength, and love. I want you to imagine them coming face to face and her cheeks flushing and her heart beating. I mean, in the broad daylight, a Jewish man is talking to her in public. Please, give me a drink. Your enemy, the devil, seduces and accuses you, and then he beats you up for being a dope, for falling into his trap. But Jesus respects you and honors you and comes towards you and asks for that thing in your hand that will only temporarily satisfy. In verse 9, it says, The woman was surprised, for Jews refused to have anything to do with Samaritans. She says, But you're a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. And how often, when looking at the potential of what God wants to do in and through us, we fill in the blank, but I'm not smart, I'm not educated, I'm not capable, I have a track record, I'm weak, people don't like me. The enemy wants you stuck in your past labels, and Jesus wants to set you free from that. And I love this in verse 10. Jesus says, if only you knew the gift God has for you and who I am, you would ask me, and I would give you life-giving water. And this is key. The devil has to keep you from knowing who God is and what he has for you. Because if you don't know who God is and the affection that he has, that he sings over you, you will numb your pain in some other way. You'll eat, you'll drink, you'll buy, you'll scroll, whatever it is, all the while staying captive to the stuff that's breaking your heart. Jesus is like, you have to get this. Because if you get this, how you operate going forward will change radically. Satan has to keep you from understanding who God is because he wants every choice that you make to be one of a captive perspective. He's, Jesus is saying, you've got to get this. And here's another thing that's so important. Whenever God speaks to us, it's from a powerful, eternal perspective. So the implications, like when you're riding in the car and you hear a song and it quickens in your spirit, pay attention. Take that moment into your time with the Lord. Say, so you were saying? Because God is an efficient and a powerful God. And when he's quickening something in you, he wants you to bend your ear. He wants so much for you to pay attention. I love A.W. Tozer. He's one of my favorite dead guys. I have a few favorite dead guys, but I love him. We'll be talking in heaven, I'm quite sure. But... Um, I, one of the things that he wrote, I don't know if it was The Pursuit of God or which book it was, but he was so curious. He said, if God is no respecter of persons, why is it that 
some rise up and enjoy intimate walk with God and even go on to do amazing things for God while others don't? Is there a common denominator? So he searched in biblical history and our contemporary history, and he, he picked certain people, and he says, you know, the differences couldn't have been more stark. One was black, one was white. One was rich, one was poor. One was educated, one wasn't. The differences were as long as the day was. But he said the one common denominator in all these people that he identified that had a rich, thriving walk with God that really made a difference for the kingdom is he had what they, they had what he called, um, what was it, spiritual sensitivity. They cultivated a listening life. They cultivated the listening life where when God spoke, it was the most important thing about their life. And when he spoke, they did something. Spiritual receptivity, that's what he called it, spiritual receptivity. When God spoke, they did something about it. That is powerful. And when God is speaking, he wants us to do something about it. Sometimes he wants us to sit with it. Sometimes he wants us to act on it. Sometimes he wants us to pray. Daily, the heavens pour forth speech. So when Jesus is saying to her, if only you knew the gift God has for you and who I am, you'd ask me for living water. He wasn't saying, I got this bottled water. You'll like it. It's so much better than the well water. You should come to me and I'll help you. He meant that he was going to go to her deepest dirtiest secrets and her vilest thoughts and heal them. And he makes that same promise to us. If you'll ask me, I'll go to those deepest places, those workarounds, those places you try to hide, and I will make, bring freedom. Psalm 51, 6 says, you desire truth in my inmost being, and in the hidden places you'll make me know wisdom. Why does he want truth in the inmost being? Because that's where lies go to hide. And we have embedded lies that we don't even realize that we picked up when life let us down, but that's where the dysfunction and that's where the brokenness comes from. So when truth gets into our inmost being, we suddenly have credibility where we had brokenness. And so often, people who stumble over Christians, it's not the Jesus in them, it's the brokenness that's not resolved or not healed. And this is why he wants truth in us so that we can walk free and suddenly think of the places where the enemies tried to steal from you and truth gets in there and suddenly you have wisdom and credibility where you once had brokenness. Imagine that. When I, um, in these last, I, I, I'll talk about this tomorrow night, but eight years ago I had a pretty massive relapse that was devastating to me. So for about 20 years, seven years of the first seven years of Lyme, I was really sick. And then for about 20 years, I just managed. I just, I fought hard. I exercised. I ate right. I did what I could because I had a life. I had things I wanted to do. And I'd say every two, three months, I couldn't get out of bed for four or five days. But then I'd get back up and um, start swinging again, right? And I just sort of managed it that way. I never felt great, but I could do life. And then eight years ago, I had a pretty massive, horrendous uh, relapse. And uh, apparently, people with chronic Lyme have a susceptibility to mold and can't process mold and it attacked my brain, and I'm a live talk radio host, and it was affecting my cognitive ability. I was mixing up my words. I forgot, I was writing a book, forgot how to spell. Very basic words, was Googling basic words. My tongue would go numb while I was on the air, and it was, it was hard. And uh, I'll talk t tomorrow night about what, how God met me in that place. But there was a point where, if you listen to my show, I have a functional med doc on my show, Dr. Troy, and he's my doctor, good friend as well. He joins us once a month. And I went in for one of my appointments during this time, and I was down because I'd been praying, I'd been taking my vitamins, because I had three in a row speaking events, and travel's just tough on me, on my health, just, you know, radio and writing I can do from home, and it helps accommodate just some of the issues I deal with with my health. Traveling throws me off a little bit, and I had three events in a row, so I'm especially good at being a steward, like, you know, taking my vitamins, drinking my water, going to bed, and I'm just like crossing my T's, dotting my I's, going, because I have these three events in a row, and then all of a sudden, I start to feel a sore throat, and I, just, I couldn't believe it, and I go in to see Dr. Troy for my adjustment and for him to check how things are going, and, uh, and he's like, you don't, you don't seem like yourself. I'm like, I'm good, I'm good, it's okay, you know, and I'm just like minimizing. He says, no, you're not okay. Come over and sit on the table. I just want to talk, before we talk about the Lyme symptoms, what's going on? And I said, okay, well, it's just this, that, you know, I have three events in a row, and I've been taking my vitamins, going to bed, and, and I've got this sore throat. And every time this happens in travel season, it turns to pneumonia, and I'm out for three weeks, and I'm deathly sick. Like, it's like this goes to that every time. Like, I don't have the, the immune reserves, you know? And he said, Susie, do something for me. He said, he goes, be honest with me. He said, you're, you're very responsible, I can tell. He says, you feel like you failed as a mom because you were sick when they were little. And I'm, <coughs> you know, ugly cry starting to come again. 
And he says, and now, as a speaker, you so desperately don't want to let your host down, and you hate how accommodating people have to be because of your health. And I, I, I lost it. I couldn't even believe it. I, that, I didn't even, he put words to something I didn't even realize, but it was this gnawing sense that I'm a debt to society. I hate that people have to accommodate me because my personality is to accommodate people. And it was like he, it was shame. I had so much shame and embarrassment around the stuff that I deal with. And I just started to cry. And I'm just like, I, I hate it. I hate this. I don't know what to do about it. And he goes, I'll tell you what to do. Open your hands and repeat after me. He says, repeat. I accept me, and I trust you, Lord. I'm like, oh, I accept me, and I trust you. Something happened in that place, and he said, Susie's self-contempt will do more harm to your soul and your cells than any sickness ever would. And this is why God goes after these places. He loves us so much, and it does us more harm when we're not paying attention to the losses, the hurts, the workarounds. And I know this is a heavier message than what we talked about this morning, but I felt like the Lord wanted us to go there, so hang with me if you would. He's asking the Samaritan woman, if only you knew the gift I had. And the Samaritan woman has this earthbound perspective and says, sir, you don't have a rope or a bucket, and this is a very deep well. Where are you going to get that living water? And this is the thing, is the enemy tries to get you to live by what your eyes see and by your emotions, because then your own words will bear witness against God. I remember when we were young marrieds and, and, and I was battling this illness and our medical debt was impossible and I'd be on my knees going, my God will supply all my needs. And I get up, it's never going to work. <laughs> and I can remember hearing God going, which of those should I act on exactly? I mean, prayer or your, yeah, your declaration over your life. But I was living by what my eyes see and there was a point where I had to line up my heart, my mind, my prayers with what God said. But enemy wants us to live by our emotions and our circumstances. Jesus wants the eyes of our heart to open up. So the woman at the well has this almost comical response. Please, sir, give me some of that water. Then I'll never be thirsty again. Then I won't have to come here and haul water. Because you know how inconvenient it is to have to avoid the townspeople? It's just, it would be easier if you could just drop it off at my door. That's kind of what it seems like she was thinking. And so often in our uncomfortable situations, we want a break. But God wants to give us a breakthrough. We want just quick relief. But the Lord Jesus wants to bring redemption. He wasn't about to make her comfortable in her captivity. He wanted to set this woman totally free. So, verse 16 to 17, Jesus confronts her sin. Because she says, please, sir, give me that water. I'll take that water. Okay, go get your husband. She sidesteps. I have no husband. And this is the thing in this story that is so hard for us, but it's good for us to face head on. The thing that stands in the way of us being truly, truly free is the denial and the justification of the places in us that still need healing and wholeness. God wants to deal with what's what happens to us, but he wants to first get at what's happened in us. And you know, when you come to Christ for the first time, it's through the little door of humility. You go through the little door of humility to say, I'm a sinner, I need a savior. Jesus, will you come into my life? Heal my soul. Make me whole. Forgive me of my sins. Well, I would submit to you that healing and maturity happen very much the same way. We come to the edges of ourself, and we say, more of you in me. When Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom, what poor in spirit means is blessed are those who know their need. So the enemy, again, every time you come to the edges of yourself, or maybe you get angry, or you get impatient, or you feel afraid, and you, your self-life starts to show, the temptation is to come under all kinds of condemnation and let that enemy rail in your ear. But blessed are those who are poor in spirit because theirs is the kingdom. So you should get excited. When you come to the edge of yourself, knowing that and acknowledging that, there's more of the kingdom to inherit. It's like when you come to the ends of yourself, there's more of Jesus to know. You hold a Dixie cup and the ocean remains. His love knows no bounds. His grace is an ocean. And when you come into these places where you notice that you need more redemption, more healing, rejoice because you've got it, baby. I mean, Jesus has it for you. He won it all. Isn't that just the best news ever? Yes. Well, the woman, her response to Jesus, she answers with a religious question, and it's kind of like a rope-a-dope in boxing. They're doing this, so, you know what I mean, where she wants to take the attention off of her sin and say, isn't it true? And she's asking a religious question about the well. Like, what she's feeling like is, I, I don't really want to talk about this right now. You're talking about that sin thing, but let's talk about this over here. And so often, when God is putting his finger on something in our lives, we like to change the subject too. 
not always, but sometimes, where he might say, that fear, I want to talk with you about that. And you're like, I don't want to talk about that, but I'll join another committee at church. Happy to do it. Right? And I think there's times where we're hiding in our church activity when Jesus is saying, I just want you to come alone with me. I want to just heal those places so I can set you free to do something beyond your wildest dreams. As long as we walk the face of this earth, I believe for every one of us, I don't care what our status is, how long we've walked with God, if you've got a high-level position in church, as long as we walk this earth, there's going to be a next thing that God wants to redeem, a next thing that he wants to pull up out of our soil to make us more like him. And again, he does it with such an invitation, never condemnation, never obligation, always an invitation. And his voice is sweet and gentle. That fear, I want that. That insecurity, let me take that. That anger, I, I can redeem that. That tendency for you to get into striving when you don't think I'm going to come through for you, I want to calm your nerves. I want to show you that I am your provider. It is an amazing thing when we dare to trust him. Psalm 4610, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I'll be exalted in the earth. That passage, be still and know, also translated cease striving and know, means these things. To let go, sink down, relax, and in some cases be quiet. And then know means to encounter God in an experiential life-changing way, in an intimate way. So I want you to think about, let's say your striving restlessness is in finances. And you don't trust God to provide, so you're doing things that are maybe outside his will, and it's not sustainable because there's not grace to do the things he's not asked you to do, and you're getting exhausted. Or maybe your striving is with your prodigal or in your marriage or in your job. And in that place, the Lord is saying to you, stop striving. Let go. And that seems irresponsible if you're a hyper-responsible person. Sink down into the Father's love. Relax. That seems very stressful if you're responsible. And in some cases, be quiet. In other words, if your own words are bearing witness against the promises of God because you're in a perpetual cycle of stress, stop talking for a bit until you immerse yourself in the Father's love. When you let go, sink down, relax, be quiet, and encounter the Father's love, you move from striving to abiding. And that's where the fruit happens. That's where the miracles happen. Hebrews 12, 5, 6 says this, Do not make light of the Lord's discipline and don't lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines those he loves. In other words, when the Lord puts his finger on something in his love, a father, a good father, is going to correct and direct. When he does that, don't shrug it off like it's nothing and don't fall apart like you're nothing. And that tends to be our two extreme responses. The Lord talks to us about something. We're like, ah, that's nothing. Or we fall apart. I'm the worst. He's like, no, rise up. When our boys were little, and they would mess up, we would always tell them, you are too important to be making decisions like that. And even in dis discipline, they would stand up a little taller. Bravely face your need and bring it to the cross. I pray on a regular basis, Psalm 139, search me, O God, know my heart, test me and know my anxious thoughts, point out anything in me that offends you and lead me in your everlasting way. And when he does do that, we have a choice to sidestep, make excuses, or to embrace and to say, Lord, if you're leading me through it, you're going to lead me to whatever it is you have for me. So I want you to imagine this. This woman at the well is connecting eyes with a man who doesn't want what other men have wanted from her. He's talking with her in broad daylight. He's reading her mail, but he's not acting inappropriately towards her like she's used to with men in the past. She's being known. And I'm trying to imagine again, her cheeks flushing, her heart beating, and suddenly the banner of woman falls off. The banner of Samaritan falls off. The banner of known to be living in sin falls off. And she is a soul of great worth, and she's meeting Jesus face to face. Imagine, imagine what that must have been like. She's being known. Maybe hope starts to flutter in her heart. And then in the distance, she hears sandals in the dirt. And the scripture says that the disciples were coming back from town because they went to buy food. So she turns, and Scripture says that they were astonished to find Jesus talking to this woman in public. So imagine in the distance, they're like, <coughs> you know, I mean, she's like reading their body language. They're like, you believe? Look, look what he's doing. And suddenly she's aware, I'm a Samaritan, I'm a woman, I'm immoral, whatever. And she, her banners are back on. You know what that moment did for me in Scripture? Until we see Jesus face to face, there's going to be people who have an outdated opinion of you. Christians who have an outdated opinion of you. 
But you got to know that God has an updated opinion of you, and he's the only one that matters. There are going to be people who've summed you up. They've got a picture of you in their back pocket, and they've made their decision about you, and they've put a period at the end of the sentence that God is still writing. They don't get to do that. Even Paul says, from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. And don't judge things before their time. And what's the time? It's when Jesus returns. We don't know what we don't know. John Eldridge said on my show, uh, I don't know, a couple years ago, one day your story will be told correctly. Isn't that good? But the thing is, if there are people who are Christians, these were Christ's closest followers who regarded her from a worldly point of view, there are going to be people who read you wrong, who make wrong assumptions about you. And you got to know so well that you're loved by God, that he's already made a decision about you, and that is imprinted on your heart. Nobody can make him change his mind about you. you got to know so we can navigate these times, because the more that we are embedded in the truth of God's love, the more we can navigate these hurts and we can trust God to heal them so that we can go from strength to strength, glory to glory, shining ever brighter to the full light of day. In verse 27, it says, the disciples returned from town, and they were astonished. Wow. You know, my boys are grown now, but having raised all boys, all of my illustrations circle around bathrooms. So I wish so bad I had some girls, uh, but I don't. I have daughters-in-law, and they're amazing. But so like one of my boy stories, my middle son, Luke, which you'll hear more about tomorrow night, but my, young, my other two, my old and younger one, were more fine-featured, and Luke was had three chins and a big fat belly, and he was just built different, and we, were, we had no money, so I stuffed him into Jake's clothes, so his belly always sort of hung out, like, and his diapers hung out of his pants like guns, and he just kind of had this attitude, you know, and uh, spent a lot of time in the corner, but anyway, um, he was, he always had to strip down naked to go to the bathroom, and um, I used to say, you know, the glory of your anatomy, God has wired you in such a way, you don't have to disrobe at all to go to the bathroom, and he's like, I like being naked. I like it. So I'm like, okay. So I don't know. I think he was four or five. He was in the bathroom down the hall, and he yells out, Mom, are you sure I'm supposed to ask Jesus into my heart? And I love that question. So I'm about ready to break into a five-year-old theological answer as to yes. And he goes, because I think I asked him into my stomach. This thing is huge, he says. <laughs> and I'm like, you know, as long as he's in there somewhere, I mean, it's, I think we're good. I think we're good. But... And here's another bathroom story, but this one's not my son, but it's a true story, Minnesota story. A father takes his son on a fishing trip, his young little son, and he's much like Luke that he couldn't go in the woods. He needed the porcelain throne, if you know what I mean. He just couldn't do the wood thing. I need a bathroom. And he's like, I got to go, Dad. He's like, there's woods. I need a bathroom. So he's driving in the middle of nowhere, and he finds this dingy bar, hates the thought of bringing his little Christian boy into this dingy bar, but the kid insisted I need a toilet. So, again, sorry, boys, these are my illustrations, but you'll love this one. Anyway, they, get, they walk past the smoky bar. They get into the bathroom. There's no wall, nor doors on the stalls, and there's really gross stuff written on the walls of the stalls. So this dad kneels into the doorway of the stall while the boy sits on that toilet, and he holds the boy's face in his hands, and he pulls his face close because he didn't want him to see the stuff written on the walls. And he said, keep looking at me, son. You just keep looking at me. And this is a picture for us because you can build a case against anybody. What would be written about you on those walls? Some of it might be true. Some of it might have a kernel of truth wrapped in a lie. And some of it's a bold-faced lie. The enemy daily accuses us all day long. And he will work through Christians and non-Christians alike to bring accusation against God's bride. Jesus intercedes for us all day long. Someone once said, if that's true, which it is, that the enemy accuses us day and night, Jesus intercedes for us day and night. We're the ones who cast the deciding vote. And there's got to be a wider gap between how man affects us and how God affects us. And if you're very captivated by the things people have said about you, things that have imprinted on you because of assignments and assessments, I want you to picture your precious face in Jesus' hands and him saying, look at me, look at me. Don't look at what's on the wall, look at me because his opinion matters most of all. In verse 28, it says, the woman left her jar and ran back to face the people she worked so hard to avoid. 
This is amazing to me because you know how the pecking order is. It's not just in grade school or middle school or high school. That social kind of hierarchy happens everywhere where if you're insecure, you kind of read the room and there's somebody else who seems confident, so you kind of put yourself under there. You know, you know how that works, right? People do that. This woman, the people of the town, knew that they had the upper hand on her because they had so much power, she was the one doing the workarounds. She was the one going to the well at the inopportune times. She was the one who was on the receiving end of gossip. And as long as they could talk about her, they didn't have to look at themselves. So they had power in her life. Well, she encounters Jesus. She encounters Jesus. I want you to think about this. To the point that she can go back and face the people who'd summed her up. She wasn't doing the workaround anymore. She ran right back to face them. Hey, you know all that stuff you've been saying about me behind my back? Well, first of all, a lot of it's true. But you should come meet somebody who told me to my face. <laughs> it's really exciting. I mean, really, this is best day ever. I mean, I try to imagine that. Why, how could she do that? Because saving face was swallowed up by saving grace. They lost power in her life. And they knew it. They lost the hand. They lost the upper hand. If this woman could be so free to say, you know all that stuff. Come meet a man who told me what you've been talking about me behind my back. He said it to my face. Come meet him. Because I think he might have a few little things to say to you, too. It's not in the scripture, but I'm kind of implying. I think it probably is. They were so intrigued by her freedom, they followed her to the well. And they were so amazed by Jesus, they asked him and his disciples to stay for a few days. And do you know what happened? Almost a whole community was saved because one woman was being willing to be known as needed saving. And churches are so full of people doing the facade, performing well, trying to act like they've got it together. None of us have it together. This is why Jesus sent new mercies to our door and sends new mercies every morning. We're all works in progress. And Jesus came to save us. Isn't it just amazing? We can't jump high enough to save ourselves, so love came down. It's radical, it's scandalous, it's amazing. I think when we see him face to face, there's going to be the briefest moment when we realize how much our sin cost, how deeply it hurt him. And we'll see the depths of our forgiveness and grace. We don't even know what we've been saved for. We don't even know what we've been saved from. And Jesus, knowing full well that we didn't know, died for us anyway. I think that's absolutely amazing. When we allow personal transformation, when we can humble ourselves enough to say, have your way, God, there's still unhealed stuff in me. And the thing is, you don't have to go looking for it. The enemy will stir it up. And I always say, God will allow an overplayed enemy attack to position you for freedom. That's the only reason God will allow the enemy to do that, because he wants to make the devil sorry he ever messed with you. One of our retired pastor friends said that when you get stirred up in yourself, life starts to show, don't despair and don't pretend it's not happening. It's Lord Jesus reaching into your soul going, you see this? I'm about to deliver you. So get excited because he's taking you from strength to strength. And when we are willing to be known as people who need saving and healing and redeeming and restoring, fruit happens, church happens, power happens. Churches are filled with people playing the game and working hard to look good. But if we could get over ourselves and be in awe of God's grace and his mercy, everything would change. I don't want to assume everybody here knows uh, Jesus as a Savior. And so if you've never, I'm going to invite the, the band up if I could. And if you don't have a piece of paper, everybody should have a little piece of paper. And if you don't, you can maybe raise your hand. I think there might be some at the end. But everybody needs a little square piece of paper. Do you all have one? And if you don't, you could raise your hand. I think we've got some hosts that will bring some around. See some hands over there. To be courageously real is to give God access to your story, to give others access to, with the understanding that they don't get to decide the value of your story because Jesus already has. And if you came in to this camp this weekend and you've never trusted Jesus for salvation, let me just tell you, it will change your life. 
because we are born in sin, which means we're in a kingdom of darkness. And Jesus knew we could never save ourselves, so he came. He lived, and he died on the cross for our sins, and he rose again, and he blew the doors off of the devil's claim on us. But he'll not force his love on anyone. He'll not force salvation on anyone. It's a free gift, and each of us has to decide, I believe it, I receive it. I'm a sinner, I need a savior. But when you get to that place to say, I cannot jump high enough to attain heaven, because it's not about being, I hope so, that I'm good enough. You can never do that, because every sin that we commit, which is multiple times a day, it's a debt. And you can't get to heaven and be in debt. So Jesus came and paid our debt, a debt we could never pay. Imagine that. He did that to such a degree that our sins can no longer be counted against us. And when you trust Jesus, you're literally transferred out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his dear son. You go from being a spiritual orphan to a royal heir, an heir to a kingdom, an heir of God and a joint heir with Christ. And I would imagine if the angels look down, I always say that when they're trying to, they're not like trying to figure out who's who as Christians based on behavior because some Christians don't act like it and some unbelievers act better than Christians. But what they see is the light of Christ shining in our hearts. That's what scripture says. It's the light of Christ shining in our hearts. Heaven knows who's who in the zoo, let me just tell you. Heaven knows who who's posing, who's pretending, and who's truly, truly saved. And they're not perfect. They're in progress. And we get to be a work in progress without the condemnation. So if you want to receive that gift, because you know what? Jesus could come anytime. A few years ago, I was at an event, and I was presenting the gospel. And two weeks later, I got a letter from a woman, an auntie. So as aunties and sisters, they brought nieces and a cluster of women at one of my events. And the gal that they prayed in, I don't know if it was a, a sister-in-law or a niece, but anyway, they brought her in. She raised her hand to receive Christ and was killed in a car accident two weeks later. You don't, we don't know if we have tomorrow or the next day. But once we die, our eternal destination is set. Today is the day of salvation. Scripture says, today if you hear him, don't harden your hearts. So with eyes closed and heads bowed, just to take a moment here. If you want to say yes to Jesus, I'm not going to call you out. I'm not going to call you up. We're all going to pray together, but I don't want to leave this opportunity. Raise your hand if you want to say yes to Jesus. I see you. I see you. I see you. Thank you, Lord. All right. Let's pray together, all of us. Dear Jesus, I'm a sinner, and I need a Savior. I believe that you lived and you died and you rose again. I receive you as my Savior. Heal my soul. Make me whole. Forgive me of my sins. Cleanse me of all unrighteousness. Fill me up to overflowing with your Spirit. I acknowledge that you are Lord. You are my Lord. I believe you're coming again. And when you come, you're coming for me. Help me to live as one who is spoken for. I am a believer. I am an heir of God and a joint heir with Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's give the Lord a praise. We've got some friends in the family. Your little piece of paper, this is a response time. And I'm asking you to make a trade Maybe somebody said something to you that's still imprinted on your heart. Or maybe it's fear. Or maybe you need to forgive someone. Or maybe you're hanging on too tight to a prodigal. But there's something like that water where Jesus is saying, can I have that so that you can lay hold of more of me? And I want you to write it down. No one's going to see it. Maybe it's a name, a person you need to forgive. I mean, unforgiveness holds us more captive than almost anything. Maybe it's chronic fear or insecurity or self-contempt. Maybe someone when you were young said something to you or did something to you and it's imprinted on your heart to such a way that it still affects you today. Maybe there's a past experience that's still speaking to you today. I always say, I no longer let my past speak to me except to teach me. But whatever it is, I'm asking you to write it down. And when you're ready, we're going to have some worship time here. Bring it forward, but I don't want you just to drop it. You can wrinkle it up. No one's going to read it. But I want you to imagine when you're up here meeting with Jesus where you see that smile that goes up to his eyes 
and he grabs your shoulders. Imagine the transaction, like the woman at the well, where he knows you, he knows you, and you're knowing him. And you say, Jesus, I'm making a trade. I'm trading this fear, and I want more faith. I'm trading this grudge or this offense, this person who abused me. I'm not saying it doesn't matter. I'm taking myself out of the equation so you can make it matter. I want to be free. So I want you to do some business with the Lord. And we're going to worship. But take some time. And there are going to be pastors, I believe. Pastor Mark, is that right? So I, mean, I think we'll have a few pastors up front in case someone needs some ministry. So if you don't mind making your way up after you've brought your piece of paper up. Because God's got you too, I'm just saying. We all got stuff, right? Um, but let me read this. And I'm going to pray. And then we're going to respond. This is a word the Lord gave me in the worst part of this last health battle a few years ago when I literally was in such a rough place neurologically with so many terrifying neurological flares. I at one point said, you have to kill me or heal me because I don't have the mental bandwidth to keep going through this. The Lord had me pull out my pen and write this listening prayer, and I believe it's a word for some of you. So receive it if it quickens in you. Listen to what I have to say, dear one. I'm about to breathe fresh life into your soul, and there'll be no missing it. You've waited a long time for your breakthrough, and that moment is almost upon you. I will send messengers one after another to confirm my word to you. Don't be afraid, only believe. Dare to take the risks I've put before you. Trust me with every step. You don't have to keep yourself, I am your keeper. It brings my heart great joy to unleash you into this next season of your calling. I will silence your accusers and bless those who've been kind to you. Your test was also their test. Take time to reflect on my goodness. I am forever for you. The battle on the earth is about to amp up. You'll need to keep your armor on at all times. Don't take things personally. Stay fierce in battle and focused on the mission I have set before you. Quit wondering if I have a plan and start preparing for it instead. Wait with expectancy, for I will come for you. I love you, my child. I forgot to play this clip, and I really want to play this clip. So you're going to have to hang with me. I forgot, but I, I feel like we need this, and then we'll respond. Can we play the chosen clip? Would you give me a drink? Did you hear me? That's bad, huh? What? You, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan, and a woman. I'm sorry. I should have said please. You know, it's not safe for you to be alone out here. Nor you. Why haven't you come with others? Why so late in the day? Don't women come to the wells in the, the cool of the morning? Yeah, well. None of them will be seen with me, so I have to come out now, in the heat, as you have so kindly reminded me. Why won't they be seen with you? Long story. I'd, I'd still like a drink of water, if you can spare it. Amazing what a parched throat will do. Aren't I unclean to you? Won't you be defiled by this vessel? Maybe some of my people say that about your women, but I don't. Yeah? And what do you say? I say if you knew who I am, you'd be asking me for a drink. Really? And I would give you living water. Would. Except that you have nothing to draw water with, and this is a deep well. Besides, what do you need from me if you have your own supply of living water? Long story. But Jewish water is better than Samaritan water. Hmm? That's not what I said. Are you a better man than our ancestor Jacob, who dug this well? Your water is better than his? I know Jacob. And everyone who drinks this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. Wouldn't that be nice? The water I give will become in a person a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Really? Yes, really. Prove it. 
First, go and call your husband and come back. I will show you both. I don't have a husband. You are right. You've had five husbands. And the man you're living with now is not your husband. <laughs> oh, I see. You're a prophet. You're here to preach at me. No. Usually the one good thing about coming here alone is I can escape being condemned. I'm not here to condemn you. I've made mistakes. Too many. But it's men like you who have made it impossible for me to do anything about it. How? Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain. But you Jews insist Jerusalem is the only place for true worship. They say that because the temple is there. Yeah. Exactly where we're not allowed. I'm here to break those barriers. And the time is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. So, where am I supposed to go when I need God? I'd never received anything from God, but I couldn't thank him even if I did. Anywhere. God is spirit. And the time is coming and is now here. That it won't matter where you worship, but only that you do it in spirit and truth, heart and mind, that, that is the kind of worshiper he's looking for. It won't matter where you're from or what you've done. Do you believe what I'm telling you? Until the Messiah comes and explains everything and sorts this mess out, including me. I don't trust in anyone. You're wrong when you say that you've never received anything from God. This Messiah you speak of, I am he. The first one was named Ramin. You were a woman of purity was excited to be married, but he wasn't a good man. He hurt you, and it made you question marriage and even the practice of your faith. Stop it. The second was Farzad. On your wedding night, his skin smelled like oranges. And to this day, every time you pass by the oranges in the market, you feel guilty for leaving him because he was the only truly godly man you've been with, but you felt unworthy. Why are you doing this? I have not revealed myself to the public as the Messiah. You are the first. It would be good if you believed me. You picked the wrong person. I came to Samaria just to meet you. <laughs> Do you think it's an accident that I'm, I'm here in the middle of the day? I am rejected by others. I know, but not by the Messiah. And you know these things because you are the Christ. I'm going to tell everyone. I was counting on it. <laughs> Spirit and truth. Spirit and truth. It won't be all about mountains or temples. Soon. Just the heart. You promise? I promise. This man told me everything I've done. Oh, he must be the Christ. <laughs> You forgot your um. Rabbi, we got food. What would you like? Ah, I have food to eat that you do not know about. Who got you food? 
the more we know his love, the deeper our healing goes. We have a Jesus who crosses every barrier to get to us, but he'll never force himself on us. And we can't mature unless we heal. So I would love for you just to write whatever it is, you know, and healing comes in layers. So whatever is that top thing, the thing that God is saying, can I have that? Would you write it down and make your way forward when you're ready? We're going to worship a little bit.